Christ the Lord is risen. Indeed, He is risen. And it's the power of resurrection that brings about transformation. Think about all the great things that resurrection changes. The cross behind me, the cross that we just celebrated during our time of communion, was once seen as a symbol of shame, scorn, execution, and death. And now, it is universally regarded as the world's greatest symbol of healing and life eternal. The power of transformation comes from the cross. In fact, one of the great things that the cross can do is the cross can have the power, the resurrection has the power to transform disappointment into hope. Contemplate the incredible disappointment that would have been on everybody who followed Jesus as they saw Him hang on the cross. Think about the disappointment that ran through the hearts of every one of his followers. How crushed and sad and disappointed that they were. Think about it, not just those that were truly devoted, but those that were interested in something else that maybe Jesus could bring them. Maybe a political change, or maybe a cultural change. Even they were so disappointed. And yet, It's the resurrection that has the power to transform disappointment into hope. I suspect that you might have some disappointment too. I look around and I can see that there are people that struggle with all sorts of different things. Disappointment emerges and disappointment can run a very big spectrum. Disappointment can hit some of our youngest children when their favorite toy is broken or when the dog chews up the latest dinosaur. This happens at my house all the time. And disappointment comes. Well, that disappointment may seem small relative to us who have lived longer, but to somebody who has only lived a few years, that disappointment rings pretty true. Think about a larger toy that may be broken. Imagine suffering a car accident, non-injury, thank goodness, but your car is broken. Well, that disappointment rings. And when that disappointment rings and you start thinking about the bills that are going to pile up and the cost that it's going to take to get a new vehicle just so that you can get around today, something that we often take for granted so easily, disappointment comes in. But what if it's not just a toy, whether small or big, that breaks? What if it's a relationship that breaks? What if there's a relationship that starts to crumble? What if a husband and wife start to split apart? What if a family is broken for some reason and an estranged child goes and becomes prodigal? What happens when that reigns? Well, disappointment follows. Disappointment comes. But there's a disappointment that transcends even these, for these are temporal things, but the disappointment of death seems to be the undefeated foe. We just celebrated Jackie Robinson Day a few days ago. Uh, Those of you who are not baseball fans might know it as Tax Day, April 15th. And every time April 15th rolls around, we're reminded of a few inevitable truths. Death and taxes. But we need to understand that in Christ, death is no longer an undefeated foe. Death has been whipped by life itself. And even though we might have to pay our taxes every April 15th, we can look to the resurrection and see change. I think about somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer and is told they only have six months left to live. Or I think about the person who's celebrating this very first Easter without the loved one that used to sit by them every single year 
and the disappointment that comes in. But that disappointment is rendered untrue because of the resurrection. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that He will raise those who have died in Him. This is the hope of resurrection. This is how resurrection has the power to transform disappointment into hope. Disappointment comes when our expectations do not find themselves in alignment with God's divine will. And when our expectations are unmet, disappointment is the result. But resurrection is how God undoes the sad news of death. And we know that anyone in Christ will be, re, will be raised to reunite with those who have died in Christ before them and with Christ Himself. This is the great hope. The hope that we have is in our own resurrection. And the hope that we can share with the world is their resurrection. Death, the once undefeated foe, was swallowed up in victory the day Jesus stepped out of the tomb thoroughly alive again, never to die ever again. This is the hope that we have. And this is the hope that I want us to celebrate as we turn to our text today. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 24. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn open to Luke chapter 24 right now. But what I want you to pay attention to as we march through our text today is the series of people who are disappointed. We'll see three distinct groups of disappointed followers of Jesus, and we will see how the power of resurrection can change that disappointment into hope. I'm very excited about our text today, for we will get to see so many wonderful elements. If you would stand for the reading of Scripture, if you're able, would you stand in awe of God's Word? Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 36. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you? Well, he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself 
what had happened. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed the things with each other, Jesus himself showed up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women have said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It's true! The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon! Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus recognized was Jesus and Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, "Peace be with you." The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, this text, long though it may be, is filled with truth that we must understand this happy Easter morning. This text is filled with disappointment. And this text is filled with disappointment being transformed into hope. I hope that you can see it. I hope you can see the truth of what emerges here. In fact, as we notice, the very first verse of our text has the women very early, the first day of the week, early in the morning, they took the spices and prepared that they'd prepared and went to the tomb. The women were disappointed, not just that Jesus died, but because what they were getting ready to do was not able to happen. They had to get ready to kind of do a better job than the rush job that Joseph and Nicodemus had done. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus, they had a very well-funded approach to the burial of Jesus, but it was still rushed. 
It was a quick hurry-up operation getting the body off the cross Friday before the Sabbath came. And even though there was plenty of aloe for which they could wrap the body and put in the linen, the women wanted to go and honor the Lord by preparing His body for final resting. And that's why they went to the tomb. But verse 2 tells us that as soon as they got there, their plans were dashed for the tomb rock had already been rolled away. And they looked in and they didn't see any body. They had a plan, and that plan was that they were probably going to have to ask the guards that were uh, taking care of the tomb and the giant stone in front of it, could you please move this so that we can anoint the body of our Lord so that He can have proper resting? And they were prepared to negotiate and to ask, but when they got there, the stone was already rolled away. They did the peek in and look, but they didn't see the body of the Lord Jesus. Well, verses 4 and 5 declare that while they were wondering about this, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning, this is always code for angels, because Luke loves to talk about the dazzling white lightning-like clothing that they have, stood beside them. And they do what everybody does when you encounter an angel. Fearfully, they bow down with their faces to the ground, but... The men do not just tell them, don't be afraid. They ask a very pointed question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And the first notes of hope start to rise. This question, why do you look for the living among the dead, is a very, very important question. There are many people who are disappointed with church. There are many people who are disappointed with God because of bad experiences that they've had with church and they've sworn off it. They said, no, I'm not going to go to church anymore. It's those hypocritical, mean Christians. I don't need anything to do with it. And they don't want to go to church. But one of the questions that we must ask is why would people look for the living among the dead? In order to find the risen Lord Jesus, you must go where Jesus is worshipped in spirit and in truth. And if you try to find the living Lord Jesus in a place that does not worship in spirit, or does not worship in truth, then you will not find Him, for it is a place that is dead. And there are some dead places in this world. If you go to a place that is more concerned with tradition than it is with the Word of God, you're at a place that is dead. True faith is not going to live there because people are more concerned with how things have been than they are with how God wills them to be. On the other end of the spectrum, if you go to a place that is more woke than gospel-based and cares more about social change than gospel truth, you'll see that this is not the place for living faith either. Understand that it is the gospel that brings about the social change that so many people want. It's not acquiescence to the culture around us. It is standing on the true Word of God and in truth and in spirit declaring His Word to the lost and dying world around us that brings life. Life is not found in bending to the pressure of the day. Life is found in the transformation that comes by the resurrection. Do not expect to find life among the dead. Make sure that despite your church hurt, make sure that you give God a chance by seeking out a congregation that will be warm and loving, 
Not because by nature they are good people. No people by nature are good. But because filled with the Spirit, standing upon the truth, they worship in both Spirit and truth the risen Savior. They proclaim His Word. And they admit their foibles, their sins. And they welcome you to worship with them. Find a church like that. I pray every day that Glendale Christian Church gets more and more conformed into the image of Christ so that we can always be a place that's living so that no one ever has to ask that question about GCC. Why do you search for the living among the dead? May we always be Spirit-filled, Christ-compelled, Father-willed, living believers worshiping the risen Christ. Well, I hope you can see that Christ's resurrection compels living faith. Not just general faith. There has to be a living faith. You can't just place your faith in anything. You must place your faith in God Almighty. You must place your faith in the resurrection. And it is Christ's resurrection that compels living faith. A living faith is active. A living faith does something. A living faith doesn't just shrink back. A living faith boldly goes and proclaims. And that's exactly the kind of faith that came alive in the women. He is not here. He's risen, the angels say. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And the words of Jesus started to ring in their heads. And they remembered what Christ said in Luke 9, 22. Jesus said of Himself, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. They remembered what Jesus said in Luke 18, 31-33. Jesus said to them, Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him. They will flog Him and kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise again. And the beauty of verse 8 is simply, then they remembered His words. They saw the empty tomb. They encountered angels reminding them of the truth. And they remembered His words. And because they seek the living, and they have a living faith, it says that when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Their faith was alive and active. They didn't just go wondering what had happened. They went immediately with the truth now that they had, and they brought it to Christ's other followers. They brought it to those who were disappointed. And they shared the good news with them. Yet, the good news was not so nicely received. Verse 11 says, But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, in the first century, women were not the most credible sources. In fact, in the legal structure, women didn't have the same right to testify in a trial or to be a witness. And so it's very striking that the gospel is first proclaimed by women. And this is, in fact, one of the great pieces of evidence that points to the authenticity of the gospel message. If you were making up a story in the first century, you would never let women be the first people to proclaim the good news. And yet they were. 
And the guys didn't believe them. It wasn't just because they were women. These guys loved these women. These guys worked right alongside these women. Together, they helped the ministry of Jesus. They had great love and great respect, and they would have believed the women, but their words seemed like nonsense. And it's easy to understand why their words seem like nonsense. This is the same phrase that often gets translated, idle talk. Nonsense. Idle talk. And that's what a lot of people think we're all about when we come here and we proclaim Jesus who died on the cross is raised again. Some people think that we believe in nonsense. And I used to be one of them. I used to be one of those guys who said dead people don't come back from the dead. And anybody stupid enough to go to church and to believe that nonsense gets exactly what's coming to them. I did not believe in the resurrection. I did not believe in God. It wasn't until somebody was able to come along who was smarter intellectually than I was, who was kinder emotionally than anybody I'd ever met, and was able to blend these two things together and listen to me complain, gripe, and groan about the resurrection, and finally explain the evidence to me, and finally help me to realize, oh, this isn't nonsense. The same way that we do history is the same way that we think about the resurrection. And the very first piece of evidence that you need to believe in the resurrection, for the resurrection to compel faith, is an empty tomb. And that tomb being empty is so necessary. And it was that empty tomb that started my journey. And eventually I came to realize that this was not nonsense. Peter, he wanted to investigate these matters. And so he got up, verse 12 tells us, and he ran to the tomb and he bent over and he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. The empty tomb wasn't enough. The empty tomb is a necessary piece of evidence, but it is not sufficient. An empty tomb by itself might be explained away. You need something more than an empty tomb. The women had something more than an empty tomb. They saw an empty tomb and they had an encounter with angels who reminded them of Christ's own word. Peter did not have such an encounter. He saw the empty tomb and the testimony of the women, but his first century Jewish understanding couldn't conceive of resurrection being one guy before the end of time. The second temple understanding of resurrection was always that it was corporate at the very end of time. It just didn't click to him. It didn't make sense even though he went to investigate. It just didn't work. And so he left wondering, what had happened? His disappointment persisted. Well, that same day, two other disciples were leaving Jerusalem and they were taking the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to their hometown of Emmaus and they were disappointed as well. They were disappointed because Jesus, whom they loved, had died on the cross, was buried. And now that Passover was done and now that the Sabbath had passed and the holy day had gone, they were able to go home and they were going home, tails between their legs. They were walking along there were two of them, and they were discussing everything that had happened. Now, verse 15 tells us that as they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Where two or more are gathered, Jesus will meet you there. It may be the case where two or more are gathered and you're talking about Jesus, give it long enough and you'll be talking with Jesus. May it ever be so that our conversation is always about the Lord. And may it ever be so that as we talk about Him in His name, He comes and walks right alongside us. 
This is what happened to Cleopas and his friend. And they were walking to Emmaus and they were talking. But they didn't recognize Jesus. Something veiled his presence to them. And even when they started talking with this man, they did not recognize him as the Lord. Well, verses 17 and 18 have this recorded conversation. Jesus asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? But they stood still. They stopped walking. They put their face down and they were sad. One of them, named Cleopas, asked Jesus, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Oh, Jesus knew. Jesus was the subject of those things. He's the one who was spit upon. He's the one who was flogged. He's the one who carried the cross till he could carry it no more. He's the one who was crucified. He's the one who was hung up on the cursed pole. He's the one who cried out his last and died, becoming sin for us. Oh, he knew. But Luke records for us such a beautiful little question. You can see Jesus grinning. An ironic grin asking, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And he was. Jesus was powerful. Jesus proclaimed the highest form of human ethics ever recorded. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus cast the demons out. Jesus calmed the storm, walked the water, multiplied the food, raised the dead, healed the sick. He was a powerful prophet indeed and in word, before God and before man. The chief priests and all the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. And then their true disappointment comes out. Maybe we've never heard of Cleopas and maybe we've never heard of his anonymous friend because they weren't as central to the followers of Jesus as it may seem. Their true disappointment comes out right here. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's been the third day since all this took place. Redeem Israel! Now, these people wanted a redemption of political revolution. These disciples were disappointed because they were hoping that Jesus would be like King David and Judas Maccabeus rolled together, which is sort of like saying they'd hoped that Jesus, in our vernacular, would sort of be like Superman and George Washington rolled together. An unstoppable human force who can create any political thing he wants, raise anybody from the dead, fix and whip any army he chooses. But then he died. And their disappointment died with them. Rome was not good to Israel. Rome was breathing down Israel's neck. Rome had its foot on the throat of Israel. Rome had its thumb on the scale. Rome was oppressing Israel in so many ways. And these guys wanted the Messiah to redeem Israel by kicking Rome out. But that's not the redemption that Jesus offers. In fact... The Bible declares in Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with Him is full redemption. He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. We'd hoped He'd be the one to redeem Israel. They didn't understand what redemption was. They wanted a political redemption. Jesus is here to redeem from sin. Jesus is here to save you from sin. Jesus is not here to redeem you from Rome, or ISIS, or Egypt, or Babylon, or anyone else. Jesus is here to redeem from sin. And it's 
because of love. In fact, the New Testament records just the same thing in Titus 2.14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. They didn't understand and their disappointment was evident. They continued on. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning, but they didn't find his body. And when they came and told us, so they were there when the women came and told them. They'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, but they did not see Jesus. Now, how do you suppose Jesus responds to this? Oh, you guys just, here, let me lovingly tell you what. Jesus rebukes them sternly. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And I can imagine Jesus shared some of these truths. You remember in the very beginning, the very beginning, like the very first prophecy of the entire Bible, Jesus explained to them, Genesis 3.15, where God is doling out the punishment to the serpent and to the man and to the woman for their sinfulness. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman's offspring and you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. The Messiah is the fulfillment of the very first prophecy. His heel was struck on the cross and he crushed the head of the serpent. And as they were reeling from the revelation of this truth, Jesus probably said, and do you remember how God shed the blood of animals to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve? So the blood of the Messiah was shed to cover the sinfulness of humankind. And as they were reeling from this next revelation, Jesus probably said, and the blessing of Father Abraham that would be to all nations, it's because the Messiah has died for all people and welcomed in all that are described in Genesis 12. And as they contemplated that truth, they understood that the high priest Melchizedek, the high priest who existed before the order of priests, the Messiah is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek as described in Genesis 14. And then out of Genesis 22, the Messiah is also the very ram that was caught in the thicket that was sacrificed in place of Isaac. Yes, as Father Abraham was about to bring the knife down upon Isaac right on Mount Moriah, right over there, where the Messiah himself was slew just a few days ago. The Messiah is the one who would be caught. The Messiah is also the one who wrestled with our father Israel and Jacob. Our father Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel, this idea that he is the one there. He is the one who wrestled with him. He is the divine one. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah described in Genesis 49. He's the voice from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He's the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12. He's the entire sacrificial system of atonement. It points to the Messiah. Not just that, but he's the prophet greater than Moses described in Deuteronomy 18. He's the captain of the Lord's army as described in Joshua chapter 5. He's the ultimate kinsman redeemer from the book of Ruth. He's the son of David who was a king greater than David as described in 2 Samuel verse, or chapter 7. He's the suffering servant of Psalm 22. He's the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He's the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. He's the princely Messiah of Daniel 9 who would establish a kingdom that is without end. He is the 
pierced shepherd of Zechariah 12 and 13, and he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And I can imagine that Jesus then quoted Isaiah 53 saying, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off from the land of the living for the sins of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the, will, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And the key verse of the entire chapter and after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. All of Scripture points to Christ. Can you see that Christ's resurrection compels informed faith? It's not just faith in anything. It is a faith that is squarely based on the Old Testament, pointing towards the Messiah. And on the New Testament, interpreting the life, death, and re-life through resurrection of the Messiah. It must be an informed life. For if you believe in the resurrection, but you are not informed, you will not know completely that the death of Jesus paid for our sins and the empty tomb and the resurrection is the receipt that that sacrifice worked. Without the Bible, you will not understand that He is the prophesied one. Without the Bible, you will not understand that the fulfilled plan of God culminates in Him. The entire Bible is about Jesus. All points to Him, forward or back. And without the resurrection, bringing crystalline clarity to those who seek the truth, they will not be informed. Can you see how Christ's resurrection compels informed faith and Christ informed them and as they walked along they got to the village to which they were going and Jesus continued on as if he was going farther in the first century in order to receive an invitation you would always decline it at first come stay with us no come stay with us no no I don't want to come stay with us it's always a game that's played and so Jesus fed right into their game and they asked him stay with us it's almost evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in and he stayed with them. They invited him. But notice that Jesus is not a very polite dinner guest. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, it gave thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized it was him. And he disappeared from their sight. If you invite Jesus into your life, do not be surprised if he becomes a very unpolite guest. Jesus is not a tame dinner guest. When you invite Jesus to come in, he does not do the tame dinner guest routine where if you get invited to someone's house, you will see where you should be seated and you will allow them to do your hostly duties. When you invite Jesus into your life, he becomes Lord of your life. And he becomes host of your existence. And he takes the bread normally reserved for the host. And he breaks it normally reserved for the host. And he gives it normally a job reserved for the host. Because when you invite Jesus in, he takes over. Because he is Lord. You do not invite the Lord into your life and tell him how things go. You invite the Lord into your life and he tells you 
how things go from now on. That is how Jesus operates. And it's as soon as he started operating that way that they realized it. Now, these guys were not at the upper room. They weren't at the Last Supper. That was just the twelve. And yet, when Jesus started doing something very, very similar, when He took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, they recognized who it was. This guy telling us about the Messiah? This is the Messiah! This is the Lord Jesus! And as soon as they realized it, He disappeared from their sight. But that was not the end. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when He talked with us on the road and explained the Scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning? Didn't Jesus do something to our hearts? And because of that, they did something immediately. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They walked the seven miles back. More likely, they ran the seven miles back. They ran the seven miles back and they found the eleven assembled together saying, It's true! The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Can you see that Christ's resurrection compels heartfelt faith? It's not just faith in anything. It's faith in the risen Lord Jesus. And it's not just a faith that's living and a faith that is informed. It's a faith that's heartfelt. It must not just be intellectually informed. It must not just be that which seeks to be alive. It must be. Be heartfelt. You must believe it in your heart. For when you believe it in your heart, you do something about it. And they did something about it. A living faith is active. An informed faith is active. A heartfelt faith is active. And these guys acted right away. They got up and they went. And they shared the truth. But it still wasn't enough. They shared the truth with the apostles. They shared the truth of the empty tomb. And some of them had investigated it. They shared the truth about God's revealed plan fulfilled in the Messiah. But still, they just wondered. And while they explained what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when He broke the bread, while they were still talking about this, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And now, hope rings true in a more powerful way than Peter, than John, than Andrew, than any of the other remaining eleven could possibly imagine. You see, it takes more than an empty tomb to believe in Jesus. You must have an empty tomb. It takes more than the fulfilled divine plan. There must be a fulfilled divine plan. But the other thing that it takes is an appearance of the risen Jesus. You cannot believe in the resurrection as an informed intellectual thinker unless there's an empty tomb, unless there's a fulfilled divine plan, and unless there's an appearance of the risen Lord Jesus. And it wasn't until Jesus Himself showed up among them and said, Peace be with you, that the eleven came to heartfelt informed and living faith. The women, they'd gotten it. The two on the way to Emmaus, they'd gotten it. But Jesus' closest fellas, they just didn't get it yet. They didn't get it until all the evidence was put in place. 
And as soon as Jesus himself showed up and they had seen the empty tomb and they have had the scriptural explanation, now they see the risen Lord Jesus and it all changes. Can you see that Christ's resurrection compels living, informed, heartfelt faith? If you have a faith that is not living, if you have a faith that is not informed, if you have a faith that is not heartfelt, then you do not have faith based on the resurrection. Faith based on the resurrection compels action because living faith is active faith. Resurrection faith compels action because informed faith is active faith. You cannot believe the truth and then do nothing with it. You have faith? Good. I will show you my faith by my deeds, what I do. You must do something with it. It cannot just be in your head. It must be in your heart. It must be a heartfelt, informed, living faith that is active, that goes, that shares, that does something, that promotes community, that promotes truth, that promotes the Spirit. It must be there together. And so what can we do? What can we do? Well, we can believe the evidence. If you are one of those intellectual types like myself, when I was a young man who did not believe the truth and you need to see more evidence before you can believe, I encourage you to go to our website. I encourage you to go to our teaching tools tab and to look at articles and documents. And you can click the article that has the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I've put together a 12-page presentation on the evidence for the historical reliability of the resurrection. And you can look at that and you can see but what if you do believe? What if you do believe? What if you are informed, although you're always seeking to become more informed? What, what if you do have a living faith, but it's always seeking to quicken? What if you do have a heartfelt faith, but you want your heart to grow three sizes? What can you do? What can you do? Well, you can pursue community. You have to do this thing together. Notice how nobody does faith alone. The women went to go prepare the body of Jesus together, and together they went to go tell the apostles. The two on the road to Emmaus did not just wonder about what the Lord had shared with them. They immediately went and shared it with the apostles. The apostles did not just gather, or they did not just sit individually. They gathered together in their disappointment, and then together their disappointment was rendered untrue and was replaced with hope. And together they will go out and they will share the good news. You have to do this thing together. And so... I know that there's some confusion in the world today, but there is very much clarity here at church. If you are a man, and you know exactly what that means, if you are a man, then on Saturday night, would you come to church and hang out with me? I'm going to be here, and we're going to be smoking up a lot of good meat. We're going to be playing a lot of fun games. We're going to have a raffle, and we're going to have guys getting together, doing God stuff, and it's not going to be weird stuff. It's not going to be a 10-hour Bible lecture. No, those are really fun for some guys. But what about, what about the guy who doesn't go to church? What about the guy who's been looking for faith but in all the dead places? Invite him here. Invite him here because it's going to be fun. We're going to have good music going, good food going, good games going, good conversation going, and the most they're going to get is a 10-minute Devo, and that's about it. It's going to be a low-pressure, low-bar situation, and they're going to say, you know what? Those Christian guys, they aren't weird. That's all right. 
Maybe I could go and be a part of that. And maybe that'll be an entry point to Wednesday night discipleship. Or maybe that'll be an entry point to a Bible class. Or maybe that'll be an entry point to a Sunday morning where their faith can be more informed and it can come alive and it can be heartfelt. Pursue community. Well, you know what? The summer is coming, but I also want you to be thinking about how to pursue community when the summer wraps up. I want you to be thinking about small groups. I want you to think about finding a small group of Christian believers with whom you can congregate. Not just in the big picture like this. This is great! But I want you to think about what it's like to be with a small group of fellow believers so that you can share life with them and you can grow in relationship and community and you can grow deeper in the Lord together. I want you to think about that. You know what else you can do? You can continue to inform your faith. You can look up all those scriptures that I talked about today and you can see, wow, the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. Too often Christians neglect the Old Testament. Maybe camping out in just their favorite stories, their favorite chapters, when the entire thing is about Jesus. And maybe we could look at scripture in a whole new way. We've got to do something. And these are a couple of examples that we can do. Community. Information. Together growing in our devotion. And what about service? Well, we've got a missions project uh, scheduled for July. There's a group that's going to Memphis to take care of some kids down there and do a VBS inner city style. And I think they might need some help. So why don't you sign up and go with them? Or if you're not sure where to serve, we're going to have a server's worship night on May 15th. I want you to come here, sing with us, and all the different service opportunity tables are going to be listed all around. And if you need a good place to serve, come and learn about how you can get more involved. That same day, we're going to have a Connecting to Glendale class. So if you're brand new, or you've only been coming for a little bit, you're thinking about joining, you're a brand new member, and you want to figure out how to get better involved, May 15th is going to be a great day for you. Because after second service, we're going to have a meeting, and that night we're going to have a worship time, and you're going to find out exactly where you can get plugged in. Can you see? That the resurrection has the power to transform disappointment into hope? It has the power. Notice that it doesn't say the resurrection transforms disappointment into hope. It has the power to do that. Do you know how that power is realized? It's realized because Christ's resurrection compels living, informed, heartfelt faith. But if there's a person who doesn't believe in Christ's resurrection then they're going to remain disappointed. Our job must be to share the ultimate good news with people. Christ the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. We need to share that with everyone. Because only by believing that can their disappointment be transformed into hope. Would you stand with me as we sing this morning? Dear Heaven.